This yes. is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell in 2010. Haiti, suffering from a devastating economy, was hit by an earthquake that made the already existing devastation even more miserable than it already was. Haiti was already rocked by a political crisis as well as crises of safety and security with few resources to address any of their daily challenges that made life hard for Haitians. That earthquake was followed by a cholera epidemic that would kill untold thousands as many were afflicted who lived far from the cities where better records were being kept. It was finally determined that the cholera outbreak was, spoiler alert, brought by members of the United Nations. However, the UN, a presumably law-based humanitarian organization that is staffed not with soldiers but so-called peacekeepers, refuses to take responsibility for the death they caused. In fact, they point to their own laws that allow them to stay above the law, which on its surface contradicts their mission. But this was a long time ago, so why be concerned now? Well, that's because the cholera epidemic never really went away. Haiti has experienced surge after surge of the horrible disease ever since, and still the UN does nothing to compensate those they killed. In a few minutes, we will speak with writer Pooja Bhatia, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Deadly Strain, how the UN sought to deny its role in Haiti's cholera epidemic. Pooja has been writing about Haiti for many, many years. She has written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, and many other outlets, including The Economist, where she was Haiti correspondent. Pooja, you can follow Pooja on Twitter at B-H-A-T-I-A-P. That's Batia P. You can find out more about Pooja as well as her blog at her website, PoojaBatia.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. We have a couple of producers in today. Producing first is Will Ippen. Will, anything new by you? Past the masking and isolation stage of oh, uh, my COVID infections. Yeah, so, seeing yeah. as how there's somebody sitting in the producer's yeah, booth, in this, that would be a good thing. In this tiny room, we're <laughs> sharing air and particulates and all the rest of it. So how could that be bad? How could that be bad? <laughs> I'm not too it's, sure. Maybe it's, that, all, it's all very human. Maybe that should be the question from hell some week. <laughs> how could that be bad? It's <laughs> sort of like, what the what's the worst that could happen? And uh, shadowing you today is Chris Colfan. Chris is going to be tomorrow's producer, fi- fl- uh, Flying solo tomorrow so chris are you feeling prepared and ready for producing tomorrow's show uh yes i am jacked about it like the hulkster on steroids uh, yes <laughs> i see nice. i think i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna take over and conquer like my man genghis khan so <laughs> very nice i love the hulkster and steroid reference at the beginning of our show because i could use starting strong exactly very strong so as i mentioned during my patreon monologue exclusively for subscribers the dreaded holidays are upon us and i'm starting to think that One of the choices we make, a choice that is not forced upon us, but one we make on our own annually at this time of year, every year, is that we choose to have anxiety and be stressed out about the holiday season. It's as if we are so used to the stress and anxiety that fuels our epidemic of loneliness and unhappiness that the only way we know how to interact with the world anymore is through being stressed out and full of anxiety. That the only way we can accomplish our goals 
at least we think, is to be stressed out and anxious. That in order for us to celebrate even the holidays, one of the few times a year we are allowed to not work and enjoy what little of our time on earth that has not been bought by someone else for their own benefit and profit, profiting off our time and our lives, that even during this time of supposed joy, we must commit self-inflicted self-flagellation of stress and anxiety. And without that sacrifice, there will be no joy. That's the only way we can find joy is to be stressed out and anxious, which is really disturbing. So the next time someone tells you how much they hate the holidays, tell them, that's why that's what they want you to do they want you to hate the only time of year you get to celebrate because this is hell but more important than us filling our lives with unnecessary stress and anxiety even when we get time to chill and calm the hell down will what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is what obvious reality do you insist on denying in spite of all evidence. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can post it on our Discord, in our Discord community, or at our Patreon page, or you can just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, when we will be announcing the winner, as we do nearly every week, following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. We got something in the actual mail from a listener by the name of Lori in Fort Worth, Texas. Inside was something absolutely amazing. Lori sent something they called it, This Is Hell Unofficial Unlicensed Fanzine. But more than a magazine, it's like an origami newsletter. As you open it, it appears to be a book, but as you continue to open it, the fanzine unfolds into several pages. It starts by explaining This Is Hell has broadcast from Chicago since 1996. The host, Chuck Mertz, interviews authors, journalists, scholars, and activists about hellish subjects. On page two, it states, Some of that hell includes racism, surveillance, war, police violence, medical monopolies, austerity, economic inequality, private prisons, climate change, the war in Yemen, drone strikes, mass incarceration, po poisoned water in Flint, Michigan, Neoliberalism, ISIS, evictions, the drug war, tax havens, mass extinction, despair, alienation, evangelical fascism, and dis disenfranchisement. You got them all, Chuck. I know, pretty good, right? On the next page, it says, awesome things about This Is Hell? No ads. Non-commercial and independent. Topics way too radical for mainstream media. Lori tells us on page four, I've been a regular listener since 2016. It's safe to say the show radicalized me. This is hell is where I learned slavery is still legal if people are in prison. Please read the 13th Amendment. Lori then lists some guests we've uh, learned from, or she's learned from the most. Aaron Hatton on coerced forms of labor. Lori then includes a picture of Aaron's book, Coerced Work Under the Threat of Punishment, which is a fantastic book, and our interview with uh, Aaron you can find at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on the last name Hatton, H-A-T-T-O-N. Lori uh, also mentions uh, learning from uh, Rob Wallace on the links between COVID-19 and global capitalism, Cerise Castle on the gangs in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Lori implores readers to look them up. The back cover then gives our contact information, including that readers can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. So thank you, Lori. And we will soon be updating our Instagram uh, page, which I have never 
ever logged into before, so I have no idea what has been posted there. As well as all of our social media platforms, we'll be posting this everywhere. We'll be showing images of that. We'll be sharing an image of the fanzine uh, at, at those sites as well. Social media everywhere. Website everywhere. A listener to the show, a semi-regular uh, during This Is Hell Office Hours on Wednesdays, they also brought us something. They hand-delivered something to us instead of just putting it in the mail. And someone who regularly, this is someone who regularly joins us at the annual holiday or annual anniversary party uh, and joins us during office hours on several occasions. And last week he joined us and he brought me a wooden hand carved cane made from a coffee plant branch by the former mayor of La Paz, Bolivia, Lupe Andrade who was on our show way back in 2015 to talk about her saga of going from whistleblower to mayor to political prisoner. And our listeners are proving yet again and again and again that they absolutely rock. If you want to give us something, you can by dropping by This Is Hell Office Hours, which happen every Wednesday downstairs at Carrie's Lounge. 2251 West Devon Avenue, or you can send us something in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we are expecting something in the actual mail that we'll be telling you about after our conversation with Pooja. Coming up. Haiti's cholera outbreak, which has repeated itself time and time again for nearly all of the 21st century. We will also have this week in rotten history. Will will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you everything that's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. News that scares the news. This is hell. And talk about news that scares the news so much that little is reported on it. The United Nations is responsible for a cholera outbreak in Haiti and has done nothing to compensate Haitian victims or their families. Much like what we discussed earlier this week with investigative journalist Nick Terse and civilian deaths caused by the U.S. military and actions around the world, never getting compensated as has happened with Somali civilians being killed by U.S. drone attacks in what was a secret war. It's almost as if the most powerful institutions and nations never fully accept accountability for the actions of which they are admittedly responsible. Here to help us understand how that happened in Haiti with the UN and is happening in Haiti and why, writer Pooja Bhatia posted the Baffler magazine article, Deadly Strain, How the UN Sought to Deny Its Role in Haiti's Cholera Epidemic. Welcome to This Is Hell, Pooja. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's Thank- a pleasure to be in hell. <laughs> Maybe I should put that as a make that a tagline or put that on a bumper sticker. It's a pleasure to be in hell. <laughs> so you begin by writing that earthquakes are short, their aftermaths are long within 35 seconds on January 12th, 2010. A 7.0 magnitude quake laid waste to Haiti's capital, killed too many people to count, and turned more than a million others out of their homes. Well before the last remains were pulled from the rubble, health workers were preparing for the next catastrophe, an outbreak of waterborne disease. So were the two related in any way? And if so, how? Did the earthquake or the conditions created by the earthquake lead to waterborne diseases like cholera? So in the event, they were not related. 
Um, as 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 that article said, um, public health workers were really vigilant in the aftermath of the earthquake, which struck Port-au-Prince, especially the densely populated capital. Um, and because it struck the capital, because a lot of people already didn't have access to adequate sanitation, and because uh, you know more than a million people were turned out of their homes and were living in tent cities, uh, it was it was uh, more than reasonable uh, to worry about uh, an outbreak of waterborne disease like cholera. Uh, however, cholera did appear. When it appeared, it was 10 months later, it was far from the quake zone. There were not internally displaced people living in the cholera affected area. So, you know, the idea that they're connected, um, that they're causally linked is really, um, is something that I think is easy for observers outside of Haiti to sort of um, assume, right? Um, uh, but they weren't at all. Um, the 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 only causal link that I could think about would be that um, or that 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 exists is that the UN, which had a standing mission in Haiti of peacekeepers, deployed more peacekeepers to Haiti in the aftermath of the earthquake. Um, and it was these peacekeepers who themselves came from a country where cholera is endemic and had just suffered an epidemic, which is to say Nepal. Um, uh, it was these peacekeepers um, that brought cholera to Haiti. So was any of this avoidable? Were choices made that led to these conditions or were these conditions out of the control of anyone that this was what could be called a quote-unquote natural disaster, a term that I really hate, that was out of anyone's hands and impossible to address because the disaster was so significant in its impact. Was any of this avoidable or were the conditions just so bad that this is almost inevitable? Uh, all of it was avoidable. You are, I agree with you on uh, disliking the term natural disaster. Um, it was eminently avoidable, uh, the, the, um, the cholera coming to Haiti. If the United Nations had screened its troops, its incoming troops for cholera, if it had tested them, um, uh, then, you know, their cholera wouldn't have come to Haiti. Ostensibly, those peacekeepers wouldn't have come to Haiti. They would have come after there after they um, had recovered from cholera, after they were no longer infectious. Um, if the United Nations had done a modicum of good sanitation at its hastily constructed base, uh, we would not have seen uh, cholera-infected fecal matter uh, spilling into a tributary of uh, Haiti's major river. And that's when it started to infect Haitians. The first cases were far from the capital. Um, you know, they um, they were in an agricultural area of Haiti called the Artibonite, um, which has a river where a lot of people will that you know they rely on this river to help irrigate their rice fields. 
They also rely on it to wash their clothes, to bathe, um, to, uh, you know, for all sorts of all sorts of reasons. So this this waterway is really a lifeline uh, in Haiti and um, and infecting that river uh, was a death sentence for, you know, 10,000 counted. Um, but, uh, but, you know, most observers believe that the death toll is far higher, several times higher. So why dump raw waste into a major tributary? Is it that the, U, the, mem- the UN members didn't have a choice, that that's what they were always expecting to do wherever they happen to go, that when they bring in their ships, that they're dumping their raw waste into major tributaries in the countries that they're trying to help? Because that doesn't seem to really make sense to me. Right. It doesn't make sense. Um, I think that here in the United States and in other countries that are ostensibly that have more um, that have more um, of a rule of law function, um, you know, you won't see you won't see um, big corporations generally cutting corners, um, doing things kind of hastily. You won't see them just you know, outright dumping waste into rivers. Um, generally, <laughs> they try to avoid it because they know that they can be held liable for it because someone is going to hold them to account for it. Um, and it's this uh, this sort of threat of being held accountable for your actions that was absent for the UN, still absent for the UN in Haiti. Um, so for instance uh there was supposed to be in haiti um uh with the un something called um a standing claims commission that was supposed to hear claims of harm brought by haitians against uh the united nations and its peacekeepers so for instance uh peacekeeper inadvertently, you know, runs over a, uh, a pedestrian. The family has to have some way of getting, you know, getting damages for their for their harms, um, for the harms that they suffered. And that's what the Standing Claims Commission was supposed to do. Um, ostensibly, it was also supposed to, uh, this is the argument that, um, this is the argument that uh, a team of human rights lawyers made. Um, It should have been hearing claims for negligence and recklessness that ended up harming Haitians. Um, But this Standing Claims Commission was never set up in the, you know, by the time um, cholera came to Haiti, uh, the UN mission had been in force for six years uh, and it was never set up. The United Nations, for its part, uh, repeatedly rebuffed uh, the plaintiffs attempts to get a hearing about this, to hear their, to, to hear their claims in any forum. Um, uh, and that really, that really led, that really has kind of underscored the United Nations, uh, lack of accountability in, um, in Haiti. There's a, um, there is, a you know, legal immunity or a certain diplomatic immunity is key to um, the functioning of, you know, the United Nations in Haiti. So you don't want someone just hauled into court uh, for no reason. 
or, you know, um, uh, for arbitrary reasons. So you want to have some level of protection for people who are serving there. On the other hand, you don't want to have impunity, impunity, which allows, um, which allows, you know, foreign agents basically to do and, and organizations to um, treat the country like a giant waste pit, basically. And you mentioned this at one point in your article, you mentioned impunity and immunity. What's the difference between impunity and immunity? Do they mean the exact same thing? Um, so, you know, legal scholars say they can't mean the same thing. And that's been kind of the the core of the argument for uh, United Nations accountability in this case, that some level of protection from um, unjust claims is important, but in response, in return for that immunity, you have to be able to um, have forums that will hold in which you have to have mechanisms or forums in which um, uh, immunity holding organizations will be held to account. And that's that's just not the case. It's kind of like, um, you know, yesterday I saw uh, I saw that the Supreme Court had issued uh, codes of conduct <laughs> for themselves, which I which I understand are pretty toothless. And um, well, basically it's when the when the party in charge is setting the terms of um, how they're going to be held to account. It's just a recipe for disaster. I think this gets to a bigger issue, but you know, some people might say, well, the, the law, the environmental laws in Haiti are weak. The problem is that the Haitian government didn't implement better environmental laws. So who benefits from poor environmental regulations in Haiti? Are these poor environmental regulations in any way imposed upon the people of Haiti, maybe for, I don't know, economic reasons to attract outside corporations? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I think that, I think that, um, I think that's a great, great point. Um, Haiti does have a chronically weak state uh, that, uh, you know, the years, the few years preceding the earthquake, um, things had actually gotten onto a more stable footing with the, you know, laws were starting to be enforced. Um, lawmakers were meeting regularly. Um, but um, in general, you know, I mean, the the state of Haiti was extremely weak before the earthquake, um, and then the earthquake, uh, you know, it it demolished, you know, ninety percent of the government buildings in Port-au-Prince. Um, it killed, you know, many, many, many civil servants and or their families. Um, so, you know, I, I, but then, you know, you look even to the longer history um, and you kind of look at international aid and you look at, you know, humanitarian aid. Um, it's pretty screwed up that there have not been long term investments in um, in 
uh, water and sanitation infrastructure. So on the eve of the earthquake, you know, maybe 20% of Haitians had access to a flushing toilet, a day, and you know, once a day access to a flushing toilet. Um, that figure was not meaningfully different than it was 10 years before that. Um, and it's not meaningfully different than it is 10 years later. Um, so you, at some point you have to ask, you know, what are the, what are the imperatives of humanitarian aid? Um, are they long-term enough to really make a difference in Haitians, uh, qualities of life? Um, and, looking at Haiti over the past, you know, I've been reporting there for, from there for, you know, 15 years. And, um, uh, to me, the answer is clearly no. <laughs> you write that when the first cases of cholera did come in October of 2010, this would be nine months after the earthquake, the cases appeared far away from the quake zone where life was relatively normal. This detail was vital, but often elided. It was easy enough for the rest of the world to associate cholera with Port-au-Prince's squalid encampments. Others figured cholera was just another incarnation of the country's cosmic misfortune. The mere idea of Haiti has long carried racist associations with disease. How much are decisions made by institutions that could help Haitians in times of crisis like this? How much are those decisions made based on what you call racist associations with disease, whether those making the decisions Rec recognize it or not, especially in uh, places like Haiti. How much do you think that these uh, the rea the reaction and the response to the cholera e epidemic was not only due to racist associations with disease, but also because the racist associations in general with Haiti? Yeah, I, I think that's that's um, definitely a huge factor. Um, it's sort of it's sort of appalling how um how much even within you know humanitarian institutions um racism you know and a kind of i think fatigue around haiti haiti is a basket case um you know haiti has never really like nothing ever goes right for haiti haiti just can't get a break um there's these things are very they have long like genealogies so in the right in the aftermath of the earthquake i remember very vividly that um pat robertson the televangelist had said something about how um the earthquake was um you know god punishing haiti for um voodoo which is, you know, it's a it's a religion, it's a spiritual practice um, in the United States and among evangelicals. That, you know, this is pretty racist to, you know, consider it just a form of, or to consider it a form of witchcraft or quasi Satanism. Um, then you had um, a few days after that, or maybe it was just it was just a few days after the quake. I remember reading with just like my eyes agog as David Brooks in the New York times made a, um, 
an argument that was in a similar frame, which was basically that Haiti, you know, it has a complex web of cultural forces that keep it backward. Um, and then he went, you know, on to cite um, how, um, how uh, supposedly to miscite his completely incorrect characterizations about the ways uh, about like child rearing practices in Haiti. Um, and I just, you know, these things, these things are, they're kind of hard to separate out in a way. They're hard to quantify. So it's kind of hard to say like how much racism affected the response and affects humanitarian aid in general. Um, but they're definitely there. And arguably, I mean, when we think about humanitarian aid in general, um, and this is part of the reason that I that I wanted to write about cholera and part of the reason that it really irked me is that it's, you know, I mean, it's basically a whole bunch of, um, a whole bunch of rich countries, countries that have gotten rich historically from exploiting, expropriating, strip mining, um, poor countries, right. Um, basically have these, allegedly post-colonial countries where there are black people and brown people. And now instead of doing, instead of, you know, talking about reparations or thinking about reparations, what we think about is putting band-aids on everything. You, Does that make sense? Go, go ahead. Oh, no, that's it. That's it. Because uh, you write that our earthquake and epidemic were the uh, tent poles of that, uh, Annus Horribilis, that horrible year with raging storms and the bungled sham, sham of a presidential election in Haiti taking up the slack. The country's nerves were frayed. And then you quote a U.N. humanitarian spokesperson remarking, uh, this is just appalling luck, likening cholera to the mysterious forces that had animated the tectonic plates beneath our feet 10 months before. What do you think appalling luck obscures? What does it erase or make invisible? That what does it deny? Then what happened in Haiti? When you say appalling luck, is appalling luck? Do you think it's an intentional distraction from the root cause of the disaster beyond the earthquake? I don't think that spokesperson was trying to intentionally distract, um, but I do think that there is a kind of um, almost like a, a fulfilled prophecy. You know, the more that we, the more that we in the rich world talk about places like Haiti or Haiti itself having appalling luck, the more we are obscuring the historical and structural causes of its poverty. Um, and those include you know, I'm I'm happy that I think it was maybe a year and a half ago that the New York Times did a piece, um, a long package about reparations uh, uh, in Haiti um, for uh, its so-called independence debt in 1820. So Haiti was the first, Haiti was um, the second independent country in the Western hemisphere after the United States. Um, it, uh, it threw, you know, it threw off, 
the French plantation owners and the, you know, fought back Napoleon's own army. Um, it was the only successful slave revolt uh, in history. And it was the first, um, it was the first black republic. It was the first post-colonial republic. And, you know, people will say, uh, people will say, you know, Haiti has never stopped um, has never stopped having to pay for that. And that's actually literal. People aren't being metaphorical. Um, in 1825, you know, 21 years after Haiti declared its independence, won its independence, um, uh, it, um, it was forced to pay an indemnity to France to compensate uh, its plantation owners for the loss of their property, which was not so much the land, it was more the enslaved people. So you basically have this, you know, country of self-freed slaves that is forced to pay um, France an indemnity for the loss of themselves. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy story. Um, and yet, um, you know, Haiti had to do this, it felt, in order to stop um, being vulnerable to the threat of reinvasion, which, you know, with a very racist United States uh, just north of it and, um, um, you know, uh, colonies all around um, was was real. Um, uh, so that debt, um, which, you know, in 2004, I think, was calculated to be the equivalent of $21 billion. That debt, um, instead of instead of investing in roads, instead of investing in um, civil infrastructure, instead of sort of um, um, uh, capitalizing on some of the um, water engineering uh, breakthroughs and inventions of the late 19th century, Haiti was still paying that debt. Um, so yes, it, you know, during a time when a lot of other nations were able to invest in infrastructure, Haiti was still paying off its former masters. The, the history of Haiti is absolutely, absolutely amazing. And the fact that they are still paying for their fight for independence is it's pretty nauseating. We're speaking with writer Pooja Bhatia, who posted the Baffler magazine article Deadly Strain, how the U.N. sought to deny its role in Haiti's cholera epidemic. You can follow Pooja on Twitter at Bhatia P. And you can find out more about Pooja at as well as her blog at her website, PoojaBhatia.com. So you write how the strain of the pathogen uh, was particularly ravaging the kind of cholera that uh, you were experiencing in Haiti while you were living there, Vibrio cholerae. Uh, especially in the early months, you write, the afflicted could perish within hours of their first symptoms. Death was swift, abject. Victims retched water. Their feces streamed clear. They would hallucinate from dehydration and then collapse as quickly as the humanitarian apparatus built new treatment centers where patients could be rehydrated and in most cases revived. The facilities were overwhelmed with patients. 
this is, you know, a, a, a horrible situation that you were actually living in. You write that teenagers brought diapers to elders who waited in line for cots and IV feeds, only to return a few days later, having contracted the disease themselves. By mid-November, cholera had spread from the river and from the uh, Artabanite uh, department throughout the country, including the capital's displacement camps. It had killed at least 2,000 people by December. This is in only two months. During Thanksgiving week, less than a year after the quake, corpses reappeared in the well-to-do Port-au-Prince neighborhood where you were living at the time. Passers-by kept a frightened distance. Haitian workers in hazmat suits used long hoses to spray the bodies with disinfectant, then loaded the dead onto truck beds. So how did the disease appearing in the neighborhood where you were living at the time, how did that change you and your neighbors' daily routine and interactions? In retrospect, was it much like what the whole world was going through in tw- late 2019, early 2020 with the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I would say um, um, kind of. And I think that it is, I think that that, that sort of um, bringing up the COVID pandemic is important too, because, you know, part the, the, the article is, is about the fight, you know, a fight for reparations, basically a fight to get the United Nations to acknowledge the harm that they did in Haiti and meaningfully try to remedy it. Um, And that really does mean, you know, material compensation. It means, you know, payments to people who lost their breadwinners, um, who were unable to pay for school fees for their children. Um, who, you know, lost their homes. Um, You know, that fight went on for a really long time. It went on for almost 10 years um, of litigation, of organizing, um, of public pressure. Uh, And, you know, in 2016, late in 2016, the outgoing Secretary General of the United Nations did apologize, although not very specifically. Um, he made a public apology, and then uh, and the United Nations promised that it would um, it would you know spend money uh, compensating, or it seemed to promise that it would spend money compensating the victims' families. Um, However, that really never came to pass. Um, instead, um, the funds were, you know, made voluntary, were, you know, assessed. They were not assessed from member states, but they were, there's this kind of voluntary fund that people, that member states could pay into if they wished. Um, most of them did not wish. Um, you know, it had raised only, I think, uh, 20 or 30 million of its um of its uh, pledged 400 million. And, um, you know, people were, people that were in the cholera reparations movement tried to keep on the United Nations. Uh, You know, are you really making good on what you promised? Um, And I think, you know, the, the, the fight kind of died down when cholera, or sorry, when COVID, um, swept the world in 2020. Um, I think that, I think that, um, there was a kind of, you know, it's, I guess it's just harder to care about, (laughs) um, 
10,000, 30,000 victims of cholera in Haiti when, you know, um, a pandemic is sweeping the world. You write that there had been hope when this this four hundred million dollar what you, what was called the new approach was unveiled in twenty sixteen. Then you describe how even the fast talking, hard charging advocate and Haiti's prominent human rights lawyer Mario Joseph, who you had worked with, told you over the phone from his office in Port-au-Prince, "quote From twenty eleven to twenty sixteen, the UN was like a monster." When I heard the news that Ban Ki Moon had asked Haitians for their pardon, I thought, "He doesn't realize what he just said." You then add, hearing the statement, some of Joseph's clients believe that cholera reparations were imminent. Joseph knew otherwise. He says to you that he was not naive. But he was happy, too. Why be happy if he knew those promises would more than likely, to some degree, go unfulfilled? Oh, that's such a good question. I think that, I think it's because you have to hope, right? You have to just like you, you, if you're doing this, if you're doing the kind of work that Mario Joseph is doing, um, or any sort of organizing, um, in these situations of extreme structural injustice, um, you have to hope, um, and you know, any, any kind of opening, um, can be a reason to hope. And, um, it's interesting. One of the, um, one of the, uh, one of the people I interviewed for the article is this guy named Philip Alston, who was, uh, who was for many years, um, the UN special rapporteur on extreme poverty. And in that, in that position, he kind of, you know, goes around the world. He went around the United States too, and reported on, um, on economic inequality, extreme poverty and one of the one of the things he kind of took up was this um was the cholera reparations um suit and he became you know an advocate a critic um and he's you know one of the smartest international humanitarian lawyers out there um and i asked him you know as you know he talked about he went on and on and on about his uh about how the United Nations had really failed to um, failed to be, you know, it, it was just like hypocritical. It was um, insidious. It was um, it was it acted in, antithetically to human rights. At the end of it, I asked him, "Well, I mean, so have you like soured? Have you given up on the United Nations?" And he said, "Oh no, not at all." Like that, the United Nations, like that's our, like, we have to keep hoping, you know, we have to keep working to make this institution, um, to make this institution um, honor uh, the principles that it says that it's going to, that, that it's going to hold. And I, I think that's right. I think that's right. You, uh, on the shortcomings of the so-called United Nations Haiti Cholera Response Multi-Partner Trust Fund, this $400 million fund, you write in Haiti, victims cheered nonetheless. They heard that they ho- what they hoped based on sentences like, we apologize to the Haitian people. We are profoundly sorry for our role, spoken by Ban Ki-moon, in Creole, no less, the language of the Haitian people. They believe that the UN would at last make reparation for their losses. 
does the UN more than anything else? I mean, you know, I understand the hope of the UN, but those hopes so often go unfulfilled. Does the UN in practice give cover for what could be considered, and I'm using this term you know, more generally, ongoing colonial abuses? Is that what the UN does more than anything else in practice? So I I would hesitate to say that. Um, I mean, especially as I as I watch um, the UN in uh, in Gaza. Um, you know, the the office of the coordinator of humanitarian affairs is, you know, every day coming out with these reports, begging, 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 um, begging uh, Israel, begging the United States to um to stop committing war war crimes basically and so i can't say you know it's it's i can't i wouldn't want to sweep it with one broad brush but i do think that the united nations in a place like haiti is and in haiti is pretty beholden to the united states um which um paid a, a plurality of you know the peacekeeping costs from 2004 to 2017. Um, you know that could be up to 700. Um, it was up to I think it was I think it was half a billion dollars at least a year for 17 years. And <laughs> given that you know and you can't pony up 200 million dollars to compensate victims of an epidemic that you brought to Haiti, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking to me. Um, so yes, in, in, uh, in, in the case of Haiti, I do think that the United Nations has often, um, operated to, uh, and operated, um, uh, on behalf of the, of the United States or has done like sort of, um, has up, yeah, it's, it's it's major stakeholder when it comes to Haiti operations, and you see this actually. You see now that the now that the um, in part because of cholera, um, uh, there's talk of another foreign intervention in Haiti, and you know Anthony Guterres has been very clear in his report that it's not going to be a UN force. The United States, although it's funding it, <laughs> it's saying it won't be a US force. It's going to be it's going to be a Kenyan force. So I think that um uh I think that the the cholera scandal has helped uh, helped kind of force the contradictions um, of the UN and the US and their role in Haiti to the to the fore. Not in a way that's good for Haiti, but unfortunately. You write that repeatedly called to make amends. The UN has insisted that it is immune from all forms of legal process as provided by the Convention on the Privileges and Immunities of the United Nations. Now that we know the law makes it so the UN does not have to compensate the people they have harmed, the people they have wronged, the family members of the people that they are responsible for killing, has the law been changed? And is there now compensation, UN legal loophole or not, or the you know necessary to move forward? Are we, is there now a reform law that allows for this kind of compensation? We know that the UN was using their law to state that they are above the law. Has that been reformed? No, 
no, no, no, not at all. Um, no. And I think that, I think it's interesting when, you know, when you talk about reform, I mean, there's this, I think it would be really hard to, um, to change the convention on privileges and immunities at the UN, um, because that is, uh, that's a charter, you know, um, that goes back to 1946 states have to sign on to it. Um, it's like, it's, it's a anal- now it would be analogous, it would analogous, um, effort to, you know, amending the constant, our constant, the U S constitution. Um, but, um, you know, there are lots of ways that the United Nations could have made reparations without having to change the law. Um, you know, they could have, you know, there, there are plenty of, um, there are plenty of, um, in legal history, there are plenty of, um, uh, cases where people have been paid compensation or gotten settlements without an admission of fault, right? Without having to change the law. It's just, you know, this, this is a complete failure of um, will. And I do think, you know, a, a good dose of racism too. You also write that several weeks after giving his apology, Ban Ki-moon was out the door. His term ended. The UN never followed through on their promises. Seven years after its launch, the fund was has collected a meager, as you point out, five point. You point out earlier, five point four percent of its goal, or twenty one point nine million. A material assistance has failed to materialize. Instead of compensation to affected families and individuals, the funds have trickled into the usual development hodgepodge. Local consultations, assessments, minuscule infrastructure projects in something the UN reports call more holistic community development based approaches. How much does what you call the development hodgepodge, how much do they benefit from this system? Is there a for profit development sector that keeps this system going, even profiteering from such development and a lack of and a lack of development? So, um, yeah, I mean that that's that's certainly what it looks like on the when you look at it uh structurally, when you look at it on a systemic basis. Um, you know, these sort of um holistic projects, if you look at the reports, which I did and you know, try to understand them, try to get clarification on them, what's what seems to be happening is that they hold consultations with communities um and community members, um, which in my memory of kind of attending these things is, you know, you meet with a, you would, um, it would be basically a, a UN functionaries going out to the countryside, meeting with some NGOs, providing snacks, maybe having a conference, um, listening, right? And then driving back. And all along the way, I should, I should note that, you know, um, uh typically people in the UN are paid very well in Haiti. This is true of all um of all uh most foreign NGOs in Haiti. You know, they have um they have in addition to their tax-free salaries, which are you know usually six figure, at least in my this is my experience 15 years ago. So I don't know if you know. I can't I can't speak for certain for what is what the pay structures are like now, but tax free salaries, free um, use of very nice automobiles, um, uh, often drivers, 
rent subsidies, mandatory R&R to the tune of like eight weeks a year. Um, sometimes there's hazard pay for being in a, in a country like Haiti. And sometimes um, there are also per diems. Um, all of this is, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I remember some of my friends who worked for the UN were able to bank their entire salaries, just like put it, you know, send it back to, um, send it back to Europe and put it in investments. It's, it's really just kind of boggling when you look at the end of the day and try to figure out who is kind of profiting or who's, um, who's profiting from the humanitarian apparatus in, um, in Haiti. I mean, it's really mostly people who are there ostensibly to do good. Do we have an assumption, do we have faith in our institutions like the UN to compensate those they have wronged and we're simply unaware the compensation does not happen or are victims not compensated because our institutions would rather not compensate anyone for anything they're doing? Because this came up uh, yesterday when we were speaking with investigative journalist at The Intercept, Nick Terse, and he was on to talk about a Somali woman and her child who were killed in a secret 2017 U.S. drone strike and never were compensated for their loss. Yet the people who were the husband of the woman who was killed really truly believe that this was just a mistake on the United States part. This was just a human error. It wasn't because of incompetence or any of the structural problems that they see that were uh, happening. Instead, it, it was, you know, just the United States, it seemed like from Nick's point of view, they just didn't care. So do we have an assumption that these institutions will fulfill their missions when we have so much evidence that they don't? Um, yeah, I think that, I think that there's also a question of like, just fatigue, right? Like, you know, it's so, when I look at the struggle, this has been a, you know, 10 year plus struggle to get the United Nations to compensate victims of um, its recklessness in Haiti. It was inadvertent, you know, I mean, they, they didn't mean to bring cholera there. They didn't mean to kill 10,000 or 30,000 people. Um, but it was, you know, it was their fault. Um, this 10 year struggle, it's like, it's exhausting for the people who are involved, you know, and people aren't, you know, this is part of the reason that I wrote the article is because like, how can we forget, you know, how can we just let this um, let this slip by the wayside. Like it's thankless work, I think for, um, for, uh, for the people who have been, you know, working on it for 10 years and, uh, and it can be really demoralizing. Um, I forgot what you're, so yeah, I think that there is, there are all sorts of forces that, um, that encourage us to kind of sweep these things under the rug to kind of forget, um, you know, um, yeah. And you you write how this lack of compensation, though, this could have a global impact for the United Nations. And you write in a scathing report three years later, as the person you were mentioning earlier, Philip Alston, the professor at NYU Law School and former UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, described such tactics as a part of an abdication approach. The Special Rapporteur lambasted the re, uh, response as sterilely formalistic, unimaginative, and ultimately, contrary to both the interests 
of justice and the interests of the United Nations. So how is this a global issue and how is this bad for the interests of the United Nations? Oh, I think that it 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 quite um I think it harms their legitimacy. Um, you know, when you know when you know about um I guess I guess there are like two ways. Number one is it you know, it erodes their legitimacy. It definitely has done that in Haiti. Again, the United Nations is really adamant about not wanting to have anything to do with um, uh, anything to do with, you know, peacekeeping in Haiti ever again. Um, And then the second one is, I think that there's also like a kind of opportunity cost. Um, And the opportunity cost is, as we think about you know, issues like reparations, like the United Nations could be a kind of leader on that, right? And like how to think about um, compensation for past harms. Um, but it's really just, you know, not interested in doing that. What, what it really is interested in seems to be, um, you know, the same old, same old. You need to keep in mind the United Nations was born at a at a time when, um, uh, at a time when it was a very different world order, right? We were post-war, um, I mean, post-World War II. Um, uh, there had been a lot of decolonization, but there was still a lot to come. Um, it was a kind of bipolar world. Um, and, you know, it's it's completely different now. The world is quite different. But yet I had an advisor um in law school who, you know, would say that uh, a lot of what the UN and what kind of human rights doctrine that was established in that post-war era um, is, you know, basically the law of white men in suits, um, which is to say well-to-do white guys, right? Um, This is like, this is, these are the sorts of things that we, these are the sorts of the harms that befall them um, are the ones that uh, the human rights system is likely to acknowledge. Which has been proven over and over again. We have been speaking with writer Pooja Bhatia, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Deadly Strain, How the UN Sought to Deny Its Role in Haiti's Cholera Epidemic. You can follow Pooja on Twitter at Bhatia P. Find out more about Pooja, as well as read her blog at her website, PoojaBhatia.com. One last question for you, Pooja, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or I think this is the category it's going to fall under. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the question remains. When presented with an opportunity to model basic principles of justice, why in Haiti did the UN instead retreat into a fortress? You write that the UN might have disclaimed all liability, but ensured those who were harmed received payments anyway, which raises yet another question. Why were contributions to this supposed $400 million trust fund for the new approach made voluntary, dooming any chance that Haitians would receive compensation? The Alston and others who were closer to the negotiations believe the United States played a large role in that decision. Now, um, that was during the Obama administration. Why would the U.S. during the Obama administration want to make the payment to Haiti voluntarily, thus voluntary, thus making it so 
it would never happen. And can we blame that on the Obama administration? Or is that just a consistency within U.S. policy when it comes to the U.N. and Haiti? Oh, unfortunately, I think that it's um, I don't think that the blame falls squarely on the Obama administration. Unfortunately, I think that it is pretty consistent in U.S. policy toward Haiti, which has only gotten worse. Um, I think that Obama kind of outsourced, as far as I can tell, he kind of outsourced his Haiti policy to um, uh, the Clintons for a good uh, for a good period of time. Um, and um, yeah, uh, I I I I I think that it has. But, you know, then the fact is, then Trump comes in and he's even worse, you know, so it's 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 um truly boggling. Yeah, it truly. is truly boggling. And when you said he outsourced to the Clintons, those are like some of the most frightening words I've heard on this show in a very long time. <laughs> so thank you for reminding me. This is hell. Uh, Pooja, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. I am going to annoy you in the future to have you back on. This has been a really wonderful conversation, and everybody should check out your article at The Baffler, Deadly Strain, How the UN Sought to Deny Its Role in Haiti's Cholera Epidemic. And please follow Pooja on Twitter at Batia P. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. What a pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. If you learned something from Pooja about the UN-caused cholera outbreak in Haiti that the United Nations refuses to acknowledge by paying reparations to Haitians who they have harmed and being reminded about the racism posed by Western nations on Haiti, and by the way, making it so there were more Haitians who had fallen into malnourishment and hunger because of the destruction of their farms from the cholera, uh, the water, the cholera in the water that was being used for farming. The whole thing is miserable. Support completely listener supported. This is held by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live this Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported. This is hell by visiting this is hell.com and just clicking on support and seeing all the different ways you can support the show. But by becoming a Patreon member, not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, you also get a special secret code word that gives you a discount on all this This Is Hell merchandise. You now also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on Patreon. And our newest feature every week, whoever is producing chooses, chooses a question from hell for me submitted by our Patreon subscribers. It's a segment I hate, but everybody else likes it. It's a question that I've never seen before. I don't have any pre-scripted or somehow rehearsed answer. I just answer whatever our producer asks on our Patreon podcast as submitted by a patron. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon, and only at Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, Chris, one of you, please remind me what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. Uh, this week's question from hell is, what obvious reality do you insist in denying in spite of all evidence? I'm going to go with my stomach ache right now. <laughs> denying that's going on. Did you guys get to Patreon yesterday, Chuck? Um, I saw the yeah, note but there were only a couple. Facebook. Okay. 
So yeah, so yeah, let's do Patreon. Yeah, we should have some sort of reminder from producer to producer to tell people we need a form. Yeah, Richard like wrote down uh, some that he left off with, but they were both on Facebook, so yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I think we were on Facebook. So, yes, Patreon, please. Well, some of the answers from the question of hell is um, Essential wrote the biohazard in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> I was ignoring that for a really long time and I had to call up my plumber to come over and fix our kitchen sink. It was disgusting. And every so often he has to come over to uh, fix our kitchen sink because he said uh, whoever put in your plumbing made it so, you know, gravity is supposed to help your stuff drain down. Instead, it goes up. I said, so can you fix this? He goes, yes, all you have to do is tear out your entire kitchen. And that's not going to be happening in the near future, so I had to pay 250 bucks for him to fix my kitchen sink. Oh, the biohazard I in my kitchen I have something sink. similar in my bathtub, by the way. Ugh. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a mystery. Well, if you need a plumber, I know one. All right. He's a great guy. Uh, then Chris wrote that I'm alive from moment to moment thanks to trillions of decisions being made for my benefit at the cellular level, not thanks to Joe Biden. <laughs> Good lord. That's going to lead to a multi-personality disorder. Erica wrote that my intellect might be pessimistic for a reason. <laughs> Uh, Genevieve wrote, the clean clothes go in the dresser fold that Namasi stacked on top of it. <laughs> I see. And then Old Grouch wrote, that clean clothes actually make it past the stack on top of the dryer, not and fold it to Navy regulation. <laughs> wow. A little bit of OCD there with Old Grouch. Yes, a lot, a lot of that kind of vibe. Uh, Greg wrote, that I can stave off death simply by upping my magnesium in B12 dosages. Huh. All right, then. Best of luck on that. Uh, Roger wrote, the appearance in my mirror every morning. <laughs> and then Mace wrote, gravity. After all, is just a theory. My theory is that objects fall to Earth not because matter warps space-time, but because invisible tentacles are holding us all down. No, I see. I see. <laughs> and uh, I think that's all we got for today. All right, so the person with our favorite answer, as always, they win their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us on X, because you can't X us on a tweeter. I don't know what the hell any of that means anymore. At This Is Hell Radio, you can post it on Patreon or in our Discord community, or you can just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Will or Chris, did Jeff ever get a tease to us, or has that not yet happened? That hasn't happened, and we are currently Jeffless in the Zoom. <sighs> we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. And when an event in Rotten History comes up and you have a kind of personal connection to it, it's always creepy. On November 15th, 1978, 45 years ago this week, in Guyana, the cult leader Jim Jones, head of the so-called People's Temple, led his followers into a mass murder-suicide that claimed 
a total of 918 lives, including more than 270 children. And I'm betting you that this is not the rotten history you thought I would have a connection to. Wrong again. I remember this because uh, the father of a very, very good, very close friend of mine was a minister in the same church from which Jones was a minister. However, Jones had been denounced by that church years and years and years before he would ever leave for Guyana. But that did not stop the local Detroit media from swarming my friend's house to ask his father about the mass suicide. Jones was a self-proclaimed atheist, probably one of the reasons he had been kicked out of my friend's father's church, who nonetheless preached a confused mix of pseudo-religiosity, perverted political fanaticism, and persecution megalomania. To escape legal scrutiny, he moved his cult four years earlier from San Francisco to Guyana and had founded a rural commune there known as Jonestown, because he had a gigantic ego, inhabited by almost a thousand people. Pro tip, if someone invites you to a commune, do not go if the commune is named after the person who invited you. But now Jones was suffering from a serious health problems and the recent arrival of a fact-finding group led by Congressman Leo Ryan, a Democrat from California, had driven Jones' paranoia over the edge. You know, not to defend Jim Jones, but uh, if I found out a Democratic congressman or any congressperson was on a fact-finding mission to find out what I'm all about, I'd probably be a bit paranoid too. Ryan and his group were there to investigate claims that some people at Jonestown were being held there against their will. For several days, Ryan's group had encountered resistance from members of the cult, and as they finally tried to board a plane, the congressional uh, investigative team, to leave the country with evidence they had gathered, a number of cult members showed up with guns and opened fire, killing Ryan and five others, including four journalists, and injuring another seven people which is an often forgotten event because of the mass murder-suicide. Later, on that same day, Jones surrendering to full-blown madness, positioned armed thugs around the perimeter of Jonestown, assembled his followers, and ordered them to drink a concoction of powdered fruit punch. Contrary to popular belief, it was not Kool-Aid. So we should not say, I see you're drinking the Kool-Aid, but a cheaper competing brand called Flavor-Aid, which was the brand my folks would buy for us because it was so damn cheap, and it was worse than Kool-Aid. The drink was laced with cyanide. About 70 cult members who refused to drink the poison were forcibly restrained and directly injected with it as were some infants. Which is another gruesome aspect of that Jonestown mass murder-suicide that is often forgotten. So, thanks for reminding us, I guess, Ronaldo. Also in Rotten History on November 18th, 1999, 24 years ago last or this week, amid the cult-like atmosphere of college football fandom at Texas A&M University, go Aggies, some 60 students were hard at work assembling firewood for the so-called Aggie Bonfire, a 90-year-old campus tradition in which students assembled for a giant fire and 
pep rally prior to the annual football game between the Aggies of Texas A&M and the Longhorns of the University of Texas at Austin. And is it just me, or is it tradition that started in 1909 in the South that includes gatherings around bonfires creep you out too? Because it really creeps me out. A lot of lynching connotations there. Since the first Aggie bonfire in 1907, the burn pile for the yearly event had evolved from a casual pile of scrap wood to a complex four-story, nearly 60-foot structure made of freshly cut logs held together by heavy-duty wire. Its construction involved several thousand students working around the clock for about a month. Sure, they could be helping feed the poor, but whatevs. Texas gotta be Texas. On the night before the big game, the log pile would be doused with jet fuel, because, like, regular oil wouldn't work, and set ablaze before thousands of cheering students and other football fans. But in 1999, a few nights before the big game, while students were hard at work on the bonfire construction, shortly after 2.30 a.m. on the morning of November 18th, the entire four-story structure collapsed. Twelve students working inside the giant stack of wood were crushed to death, and another 27 were seriously injured. It took first responders and equipment operators more than a full day to remove logs from the pile very carefully so as not to cause further collapse and more injury of students still trapped inside. Texas A&M was hit with multiple lawsuits and ended up paying out millions in compensation. And after two years of deliberation, the university announced that the annual bonfire was permanently canceled and it never happened again. Ah, uh, guess again. That has not stopped students and fans of Texas A&M football from actually having a bonfire. As ESPN reported, within only five years of the deadly disaster, every year Aggie students have been building and setting ablaze an off-campus stack of timber. Unsanctioned by the university and established without its consent, and featured on ESPN every year, the new iteration has been described in the media as a Rogue bonfire. A renegade, renegade bonfire. Mm, you can still enjoy it on ESPN. Now, that's Rotten History and This Is Hell. Will, Chris, one of you, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Um, next up is poet and essayist Kay Gabriel, who will talk about her N Plus One magazine article, The Anti-Trans Panic and the Crusade Against Teachers. The goal is to crumble popular support for public education. Kay is author of A Queen in Bucks Country. Isn't that amazing? That, I find that the anti-trans, anti-gay movement, it's all about just destroying public education. Mo oh, yeah. Moms for Liberty are really about moms against liberty for teachers, health workers, and gay and trans people. There's nothing about liberty. It's, uh, it's just such a shame. It's been that way since the mid-50s, Chuck. I know. <laughs> Thank you for enlightening me <laughs> yeah. what was happening before I was born. So uh, we don't know what Jeff is doing during the moment of truth yet, uh, but he will be doing a moment of truth tomorrow. I want to thank Will Ippen and Chris Kulfan for 
uh, producing today's show. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host. Beginning Monday, December 4th, and running throughout all of December, as well as during our first show of the new year on January 2nd, 2024, This Is Hell will be live streaming, podcasting, and airing the very best of 2023, our favorite interviews of the year as selected by listeners and staff of This Is Hell. And I'm going to be sharing some of those suggestions that we've already received from some listeners. Tell us what your favorite interviews were, who were your favorite guests, and if we play any of the conversations you picked, we'll thank you personally on the show and we'll tell our listeners what you think of those interviews. All you have to do is send us your favorite or favorites to, again, Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, DM us via X at ThisIsHellRadio, post on our in our uh, Discord community under our announcement in the general category. Message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or leave your reply in the comments or at our Facebook group page, welcome to the hellhole or share them with us via the announcement on Patreon. There's all sorts of places you can tell us what your favorite interviews were of 2023. We also hope to see all of you on Wednesday, December 20th, Winter Solstice Eve, for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. And yes, regular This Is Hell office hours are happening this Wednesday at Carrie's Lounge, beginning around 6 p.m., and we hope to see you there as well. It's supposed to be in the mid-60s tomorrow, so it will be a great night to hang out around the fire pit in the beer garden. By the way, we have a guinea pig, and we also have some breaking news. Not the cute, adorable vermin that people raise as pets, but someone is actually willing to try the elixir we mentioned earlier this week that a business wants us to advertise on the show. Listener Andrew J. writes, I have dabbled with elixirs. (laughs) I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that before. I've dabbled with elixirs. I mean, I know an alchemist. I've dabbled with elixirs and would be glad to be a guinea pig. If okay, I will pay for shipping. Nootropics are potentially a weird sensation. A pyrisatum, I don't know what that is, P-I-R-A-C-E-T-A-M, has been established as safe and has been hawked by Joe Rogan. <laughs> but there are many other variants which are stronger. There actually are a whole boatload of pricey magic elixirs from uh, somewhat disputable and somewhat reputable sources. Uh, Adaptogens just means mushrooms dust. And similar products are on health food shelves and overpriced smoothies. Overall, it sounds mostly harmless and benign, but overpriced. The dosage of the nootropic is almost certainly calibrated to one person's preference, and this ingredient uh, alone makes it probably inappropriate for mass consumption. So, Andrew... At your request, we will. At your request, we will be asking Julia for a sample of her quote, mostly harmless and benign, but overpriced elixir. And if she actually does send it to us, we will forward it on to you, Andrew. Breaking news: We got another email from Julia just before today's show began. Julia writes, "Hi, giving this a last shot, pun intended. I guess you do shots of this elixir, or." 
Like injections or, exactly. or knocking it back? Oh, no. I don't know. Either way, I'm game. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Get us into that Joe Rogan money, Chuck. I know you're pro- you've probably got a lot on your plate, but I really think you'd like working with us. We're not into scripted sponsorships, just honest feedback and good vibes. <laughs> That's suspicious. Uh, would love to send you a sample first. P.S. I really hope they didn't find out. I have no idea who they are or what Julia did not want them to find out. Hmm. But we may be learning That's soon. <laughs> it's probably about nootropics yeah, somehow. Something, something. Or adaptogens. Either way, it doesn't sound good. So we have requested that she sends us samples. And Andrew J., if it does come in the mail, we will send you a sample. And apparently Will is game. So yeah. we can watch him during office hours. We'll give him some. Then we can just yeah. stare at him and see what happens. It'll be a little experiment. Sure. <laughs> Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com.